0: Drop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those
1: two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee? Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee.
0: Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. welcome to episode one of unknown orbits i'm steve reitze and i'm patrick baird today we will be introducing ourselves and discussing what this podcast is
1: about i'm the author of the beatnik spy series currently available on amazon and i'm also currently working on a military science fiction novel i'm also a published author under a couple other names
0: now the nature of science fiction has changed many times over the years we've decided to focus our podcast on the years 1926 to 1966, which we refer to as being from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. So, Pat, who was Gernsbach, and why would we start with him?
1: Well, Gernsbach is widely considered to be the progenitor of American science fiction. The reason is that he published a magazine called Amazing Stories, starting in 1926. Now, he had actually been a publisher and a radio station owner, He operated a New York City radio station back uh, as early as the early 1920s. He actually published magazines specific for radio technology prior to that. And he was very much, he was actually a fairly influential and important person in the development of popular radio technology in America. He helped to popularize it through his magazines he was, as I said, a radio station owner. He was involved in supporting the development of technology. So he was a fairly significant figure in a technical area. And the reason that we pick him as our starting point is, for my opinion, the emergence of amazing stories opened up a market for science fiction in the American pulp magazines. There was certainly plenty of science fiction published Before 1926, much of it quite popular. Jules Verne was a very popular writer. H.G. Wells was very successful. And of course, you had Edgar Rice Burroughs, who had an enormous series of successes with his Mars books, his Venus books, his Moon books, and of course, the Tarzan novels. So it was not as if he popularized science fiction as he sometimes tried to claim. As a matter of fact, I've got a quote from him saying... I started the movement in science fiction in 1908 through my first magazine, Modern Electrics. At the time, it was an experiment. Science fiction writers were scarce. There were not a dozen worth mentioning in the world. So, that's a little bit of retro history on his part, trying to claim credit for inventing science fiction, which he certainly did not. And actually, that magazine that he mentioned did not publish fiction until 1911, several years after it started and promptly folded in 1914. So he was not a pioneer that early, really. And as a matter of fact, I believe most of the fiction he published in that magazine in that brief time was his own. So uh, hardly a trailblazer. But he was right when he said at the time there were maybe a dozen, quote-unquote, science fiction writers in the world, uh, and that's basically true which gives you an idea what sort of market there was for that fiction. A handful of people like H.G. Wells and Edgar Rice Burroughs could certainly have big success, but anybody who said, I'm going to be a science fiction writer in 1920, was delusional. So really what Gernsbach did by creating Amazing Stories magazine is that he opened the door in the pulp markets, and the pulps really took off after World War Two or World War One, I, I should say, and At the time, a really top magazine like Argosy or Blue Book, they would have had a circulation around a million or more. Within a year of publication, Amazing Stories got their circulation up to 150,000, which wasn't an enormous success. A few years later, the more successful specialized pulps like The Shadow or Doc Savage would have had, let's say, 300,000, 350,000 circulation. So to have 150,000 at the dawn of the pulp age, you know that's pretty good for a very specialized publication. And in the early year or two of Amazing Stories, a lot of the content was reprinted content from H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, Edgar Allan Poe. So it was not a huge amount of original content to start. But over the years, he did find and develop writers who had contributed original science fiction to the magazine. Now, he lost the magazine in 1929, so only after a few years he was out of that magazine. He was uh, forced into bankruptcy, some say by someone who wanted to buy the magazine out from under him, but he was away and gone from amazing stories within just a few years. But he almost immediately turned around and went out and started some other magazines, one of which Thrilling Wonder Stories lasted for quite a while. So what to gauge, I think really to gauge the impact of Gernsbach was within six years of him having created Amazing Stories, the Buck Rogers character who appeared first in Amazing Stories, the Buck Rogers comic strip was within three years, I'm sorry, within three years, the Buck Rogers comic strip was being syndicated all over the country. So that helped to popularize science fiction to the mass market. Within six years, Buck Rogers had a radio serial. Again, that was the most popular medium at the time, so that helped to popularize science fiction. Eight years from its Amazing Stories birth, Flash Gordon had a comic strip, which was enormously successful, shortly followed after by the Flash Gordon movie serials, which were extremely popular. So within 10 years of the first issue of Amazing Stories, Science fiction was fairly well established as one of the genres in the pulp magazine that was reliable for an audience. And you had a number of imitators come along. Gernsbach himself, as I said, he lost Amazing Stories in 1929, and then immediately he went out and created a competing magazine. So I think that's really what he deserves credit for not for the quality of the stories that appeared in his magazine. A lot of them were, were not very good. It was a lot of very crude space opera. But he certainly deserves credit for opening the market up. And he had a base to work from, to begin with. He was that radio man, that technical guy. He had a catalog that was very popular among radio enthusiasts around the country. So he took that base and used it to start the first dedicated science fiction magazine in America, and that's what he deserves credit for. And that's really where I think we should begin, is in the days of the pulps. There's a lot more things that, that developed after Gernsbach, but certainly I think he deserves credit for being the starting point for science fiction in mass media in the United States.
0: I would agree with you. I mean, a lot of people look at Gernsbach as some kind of god who created science fiction, and I don't think he was. I think if he hadn't started the magazine, someone else would have. However, he did start the magazine. He, he's kind of that point in history where there was a change. His magazine provided a market for authors to sell stories. And it's well known from the 1950s. The more science fiction that is available for people to read, the more people will read and then they will ask for more. It, it grows the market the, the more outlets you have. And, of course, the more science fiction is written, the more writers have to be creative to come up with new stories because all the, the easy stories are are taken at first. So that grows what science fiction is.
1: Well, I, I would say that that's sort of right, but I think that during the 1920s and to the mid-1930s, science fiction pulps were very derivative. I think you had a lot of space opera type stories featuring very similar plot lines, very similar characters, you know, a lot of mad scientists, a lot of, you know, evil robots, that sort of thing. So I think that, I don't think there was a concern about how original writers had to be until, let's say, maybe When John W. Campbell came along and created Astounding Magazine or became the editor of Astounding Magazine. That is probably the point you could point to where the idea of quality and creativity sort of came into play. But we'll we'll get to that at some point in, in detail.
0: This also brushes against my own idea that the nature of science fiction needs to evolve every 20 years or so, because what is considered science fiction at the time ends up being so fully explored that people have to look in new directions. And maybe I was applying that uh, a little early, but I was thinking of the kind of the change from the super science stories to the golden age.
1: Yeah. So that was, it's about what a 12 year jump from 26 to 38. Yeah. 38 being the year that that John W. Campbell took over an astounding. So You know, a dozen years, 20 years, 15 years, whatever it may be. I I agree with you. There's there's probably a cycle. And I think maybe what happened in the 1930s was the cycle was that people who grew up reading science fiction came of an age and began to write science fiction. So you had people like Isaac Asimov uh, coming in and beginning to write science fiction in the late 1930s having been a fan uh, and there were active fandom fan groups in uh, at least in new york city at the time so uh maybe that's you know and that's again a topic for a later show but i think that i kind of agree with your idea that there is a cycle it's just a question of what drives a cycle and that's one of the questions i i think would be fun to explore
0: i had known that fandom goes Further back than you realize at first, but what what was a surprise to me was how early we had fans turning into writers like Asimov. That was the mid to late 30s.
1: It might have been actually earlier than that too. That's one thing I want to do a little more research on. Uh, but but you know where did where did the the writers that that wrote these pulp magazines? Where did they come from? Some of them were pulp, just pulp writers who saw an, a new market that they could step into and write for. And that's why they wrote very derivative material. But again, that's something we can look forward to discussing in some depth at a later point. So I was just going to throw it back to you to talk about why we end our review in 1966 with the premiere of Star Trek. Why is that our ending point?
0: Well, my argument would be that that was another time when the very nature of science fiction began to change into something else. So it's, it's a good point to stop at. Now, what that change was, it's, it, it's generally referred to as new wave science fiction. Now, the timing of the new wave is a bit fuzzy, and it depends who you talk to about it. The term was originally used in 1961, and it was really more about yet another British invasion of uh, science fiction writers. It did later become used to describe the new approach to science fiction, which was fully accepted by the magazines around 1967. And Star Trek came out in 1966. So it's a pretty close match for the general adoption of New Wave. Now, the thing is, is what is new wave science fiction? Discussions tend to drift into terms like modernist and postmodernist and all sorts of theories, and I was not able to find a practical definition of it. So I I came up with my own. Simply, in my view, it's when science fiction changed from being stories of how people dealt with, and I'll call it futurism because it's not just science, how people dealt with futurism to stories of how futurism affected people. Now that's a seemingly small change in definition, but once you dig into it, it's kind of a large change in terms of the stories that come out of it. And I have examples in Star Trek for those two definitions. Okay. So for example, the episode Galileo seven, that's when the shuttlecraft is stuck on a planet and, and they have to survive and, and rescue themselves. That is all about dealing with the problems of technology.
1: Science fiction stories about fixing things and, and coming up with solutions to problems. That's very golden age science fiction. Exactly. That is a huge component of golden age science fiction. So I agree with you there.
0: And then how futurism affects people being the focus of the story the star trek example would be charlie x you recall yeah, that's that
1: one? the one with robert walker junior where he has psychic powers he can he can change objects and people and uh, wipe people's minds clean and he is brought on the enterprise and he gets kind of horny for nurse chapel i th- i think it was was it nurse chapel he got horny for or or Yeoman Rand. It was Yeoman Rand that he got horny for, and um, that that goes wrong. And of course, Captain Kirk straightens him out by slapping him around a little bit and telling him to grow up and be a man. And that, you know that pretty much solved the problem. Yeah, that is definitely a people problem story. I don't remember what what it was that caused him to be a mutant that had these powers. But clearly some happening or some device changed him into this person. So, you know, and I I would say I I kind of roughly agree with you, although there are plenty. We could probably find a ton of examples of stories about futurism affecting people many years earlier than 1966. So, you know, I don't think it's a hard fact. But I I do agree that there was probably more of an emphasis in the field moving away from the hard science fiction, the technical science fiction, the problem solving stuff towards more people oriented and social. I think there was a lot more social science fiction talking about how, you know, technology affected society. I think that's definitely something that was much more prevalent in the 1960s.
0: There's there's also many stories that are kind of a mix of the two, so it's it's almost a tonal difference. Like uh, there's I think it's F. L. Wallace had Tanglehold, and it was like 1952 if I recall, where they have a police state that have these horrible horrible weapons that they they squirt out a basically a web that will crawl on, on your skin and tighten and and ball you up. And the story is all about how the people are being oppressed by the government because they have this weapon. And that was very early on. But somehow the tone of it was more kind of Silver Age science fiction. And the pessimist to me would say, by the 1960s, you had people who were writing science fiction, who had learned from what the second or third generation of writers. You had people who were not technical people who wanted to write science fiction and couldn't write hard science fiction. So they had to go in a different direction.
1: That's a really good point, because if you look at a lot of the people in the classic golden age, which would have been the, the late 30s and the 1940s, a bunch of those people were engineers and scientists. Asimov had an advanced degree in chemistry. So, you know, you had really, really smart people, really highly intelligent, technical people writing science fiction. And I think after World War II, with the G.I. Bill and with the new generation coming along, you had a lot of people who went to college. But they didn't go to college to be engineers. They went to college to be writers. And they studied literature. And so they brought, you know, a sense of literature and even modern literature with them to the field. So I think that had a lot to do with that change as well. I think you're absolutely right that there, there was a lot, a lot less really technical people in the field as, as time went on, or the balance changed.
0: Yeah, and I was resisting talking about this, but the counterculturalism of the time, I think, also uh, had an effect. I mean, for one thing, I could quote a couple absolutely terrible stories that only only a sophomore. English lit major could think were clever or entertaining. And they were all about teaching you lessons of how horrible a person you really are.
1: Yeah. There's also a lot of, a lot of science fiction stories about hallucinogenic drugs in the 1960s as well. So, and some of those are probably pretty embarrassing to look back on 50 years later. And you got to write about sex too. Oh yeah. So that was a bonus. Yeah. Right. So that's our, our definition of the golden age of science fiction is a roughly 40-year period that began with amazing stories and ended sometime in the 1960s. That's what we're going to look at. And that and that's exciting to me because to be honest with you, I've been so out of touch with science fiction for most of my adult life. This is giving me an opportunity to go back and and read a lot of stuff that I missed out on. And I'm a lot more excited about reading classic older science fiction than I am reading the more modern literate stuff that came out in the 60s, 70s, and right up to the present. So I'm a lot more comfortable with the old masters than I I think I would be with what came after, personally.
0: Do you want to detail how you came to science
1: fiction? Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good point. We should cover it since this is our first episode. I did. I was a science fiction reader when I was a kid. I loved Ray Brad- Bradbury. He was my one of my favorite writers. I read everything I get my hands on by him, uh, and I read Tom Swift, and I read you know anthologies of short science fiction. Anything I get my hands on. But as I came into my teen years, I gravitated away from science fiction into horror and fantasy. And that's what I pretty much stuck with most of my adult life. But this project that we've undertaken is, like I said, it's given me an opportunity to catch up, you know, with all this wonderful classic stuff. Uh, and I've started a reading list. I've, I've got a pile of books on my bedstand, waiting to dig into. I've got a bunch of books on my shopping list on Amazon. I'm waiting to buy. And I'm I'm really looking forward to this giving me the opportunity to discover all of this stuff and and really, just as a fan, just enjoy it. So I'm going to be a little bit more of a virgin in this endeavor than you probably, because I'm going to be discovering a lot of stuff as we go.
0: I think I do have an advantage over the era that we, we picked. You would have the advantage in anything after 1978, I think. Of course, as a kid, I read just about everything in my small town library, which didn't have a whole lot, but it included things like Hugh Walter's UNESCO series. And I, I enjoyed them very much. I didn't consider myself a real science fiction reader at the time. I was reading quite a lot. And I think it was later in my early teens when I discovered James P. Hogan, who is generally considered a hard science fiction writer. And having mentioned this to someone who was older, they suggested Hal Clement. And that just led into all the other 1950s writers. And then I stumbled across a big box of magazines from the 50s and went on to collect them for a while. Well, so how do we get out of this? I don't know. We'll have to learn to do transitions better. Yes. So I guess that brings us pretty much to the end of this introductory episode. We are enjoying the process so far. We hope that you've enjoyed the podcast and that you will join us again for our next episode.
1: That's for Unknown Orbits, taking off. That's all
0: for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits.
1: Two guys from Milwaukee.